Before I start with the sermon, I just want to say a few words. <clears throat> First of all, I want to express my gratitude to our Lord Jesus Christ for giving me the privilege of being here today and uh, in divine providence uh, allowing for me to be part of the fellowship of this church and part of the teaching and preaching ministry. By the same, by the same token, I want to express my gratitude to our brother Pastor uh, Ricky and Pastor Laramie for having accepted me into their fellowship of preaching. I, I looked upon this with uh, a great uh, fear and, and tremble. Uh, I want to say something in regards of uh, my approach. I try to be faithful to scripture and uh, follow the intention of the author follow the intention of the Holy Spirit and try to follow him as he leads. When I studying the word and preparing a sermon, I try to follow his direction and follow the agenda of the Holy Spirit. I bear in mind the warning of the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Galatia when he says that if he was still trying to please men, he should not be a preacher of Christ. Uh, we know that God is not a respecter of men. So I'm not here to please a man. I'm here to please the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe with all my heart that I will render an account of what I'm saying today and all that I have ever said in regards of him. So I just want you to bear that in mind that I'm here to, above and foremost, to proclaim the word of God. Along those lines, I will exhort you to follow the reading of the scriptures, to test everything that's being said. Do not take it for granted, but rather bring it to the Council of Scripture tested to see if it is the truth. That's uh, your obligation as we go in uh, doing the sermon. If you will stand for the reading of the Word of God, go with me to Exodus chapter 19, verse 21 through 25. I begin there because of the context of the uh, passage. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests come near, <clears throat> let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warn them, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and come up, bring Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break, he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, Lord. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dear Father, in this morning we gather together in the name of your beloved Son, our Savior. We worship you, Father. We praise you, for you alone are worthy. May your name be exalted in this morning and forevermore. 
Grandfather, this morning, soften hearts. Let your word not fail, Father. Give us ear to hear and eyes to see. Grant me grace, Lord, to be faithful to your word this morning. Grant that I may be able to exalt your name, to worship you in my preaching, and that our Lord Jesus Christ, our Master, may be glorified. That as a byproduct of that, your people may be edified. Bring conviction, Father, what it needs to be. Allow us not, Father, to run away from the counsel of Scripture. Grant us humility to submit to it. And to understand that these are not just the sayings of any man. But in as much as I am faithful to your word, it will be as though you are speaking through a man. I ask this, Father. For your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> okay. It is necessary for us to remember the immediate context of this passage. Remember that Moses had brought the people of God to the feet of the mountain, and just as our brother pastor mentioned last week, this was the fulfilling of what God had promised to Moses back in chapter 3. You see that God said to Moses, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When? Now, I want to notice there that it doesn't say if, but it says when. When you have brought the people out of the Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now this fact alone it is wonderful. The fact that God is bringing to pass what he has said that will come to pass. The prophet Isaiah tells us in his <clears throat> prophetic utterances, he talks about this great attribute of God, which is his absolute sovereignty. Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purpose, so shall it stand. In passing through here, allow me to say that this truth is essential for the life of the believers because it helps us to understand that there is absolutely nothing in this universe that is not under the total dominion of our great God and that the divine purpose cannot be frustrated. Now we must remember that as we saw last week, God had descended in a great cloud and thunder to meet with his people on Mount Sinai. We read in verse 16 of chapter 19, it says, On the morning on the third day, there was thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people trembled in the camp. Now the question I want to plant before us in passing through here is this, why did the people tremble? Why did the people tremble? Now we must understand that these people were about to be exposed to the most terrifying being inside and outside the whole universe. We must not let that escape our grasp. This is the Lord Yahweh, the Holy One. Now, beloved, this is the most consuming and terrifying attribute of God. However, we must bear in mind that terrifying as that may be, this is still a God who is coming yet in peace and not in wrath. 
Now imagine when he comes in wrath. And so we see that God told Moses, Exodus 19.21, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. Verse 22 says, Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Verse 23 says, And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned the saints that limits around the mountains and consecrated. Now in this passage, we find three important principles that are essential for believers to understand. You want to write this down, these are these. Separation, mediation, and consecration. Separation, mediation, and consecration. In regards to separation, we must understand that no one can see God and live. Ever since the Garden of Eden, there is a tremendous chasm between man and God. And that is why there needs to be a mediator, which brings us to our second principle, which is mediation. Now, this motif keeps repeating all throughout this book. We've seen a great example of this office of mediator in the person of Moses. Just like our pastor mentioned last week, Moses was a type of Christ. Passing through here right quick, I want you to know that types and shadows of Christ is a, is a study of theology. It's a branch of theology that has to do with the presence of Christ in the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, we find something that theologians call the scarlet thread. This is imagery and pictures of Christ represented by the various pers persons throughout the scripture or situations portrayed in the Old Testament. Uh, one example of this, we find it. Uh, back in chapter 17, verse 11, we saw how, how when the people of Israel fought against Amalek, they could, they could only win the battle if Moses held up his hands. Now this affords to us a beautiful imagery of the supreme mediator, Christ. Now why? Because just as the people, listen, because just as the people were victorious by virtue of the mediator, in this case, Moses. Now we have a mediator far superior who does not need anyone to help him to hold up his hands. But having made satisfaction for all of us who believe, now he's sitting on the throne at the right hand of God, the Father in majesty on high. The last principle, consecration. Now, what does this mean? Now this, this means that it is necessary for the people and priests to prepare themselves to be in the presence of the holy. This is a twofold principle. First, they need to cleanse themselves and send the self, set themselves apart. For this, is, for this purpose, listen, for the exclusive use of God, especially the priests. Now we must note <clears throat> In the passing through here, we must not allow, and because this takes place uh, amongst us, we must not allow the familiarity and grace, we must not allow that to prevent us from understanding that God is holy and that those who violate his holiness will be destroyed. And this is a fair example of this reality. Now, with that in mind, let us go to chapter 20, verses 1 and 3. Exodus 
verse 1. Chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying. Now, the first thing we must understand in passing through this, before I go any further, is this. When we read this passage, is that what we need to understand is that the words we are about to read are not negotiable. They are not guidelines or suggestions that we may or may not obey. This is what theology calls the epidectic law. What that means is this is absolute commandments. They are to be obeyed. Now, like a brother pastor said last week, they needed to do this and live. But we, on the other hand, because we live, we need to do this. Nevertheless, the law is not abolished, but rather established. I'm passing through here. Allow me to explain something before I go any further. We must make a few distinctions in order to have a better understanding of the law and what the Bible means when it refers to the law. First of all, when the scripture talks of the law, it does not only refer to the Ten Commandments, but also refers to the writings these are, for example, the book of wisdoms, uh, the, the book of wisdom, the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, for example, and the prophets. Now, concerning the Mosaic law, there are three major divisions in the Mosaic law. We have the civil law. This is also known as, known as the casualistic law. What does that mean? In case of this, then do this. Now, we have also the ceremonial laws and the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. Now, concerning the civil and ceremonial laws, we must understand that in this side of the cross, all of those are no longer in place. These laws were satisfied and removed by our Lord Christ. There is no longer need to perform the rituals and sacrifices, and also, we as Gentiles are not under a theocracy. What that means is that those laws were given to the Israelites at that time for that specific purpose. That is, the ceremonial laws and the civil law. Now, what about the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God? This law transcends to the New Testament. And as our brother said last week, there's two divisions to this law, the, the two tables of the law. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God and our attitude towards God and our duty to God. This other six has to do with our fellow men and the way we relate to one another. Now, why is this important is because of this. We must understand these distinctions because lacking a sound balance and understanding of the law will often lead us to a neglection and rejection of the correct application and use of the law in the life of the Christian. In other words, it is because we don't have a sound understanding of the Ten Commandments and the distinctions that the New Testament and the Old Testament makes in regards to the law, we do this. We throw the baby out with the bath water. And that's what we're trying to prevent. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, do bear in the life of the believer today. That is the point I'm trying to make. Now, with that in mind, let us observe verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now it is important for us to understand that God wants his people, listen, to know and remember 
Who had delivered them from Egypt? Now, it's important for us to bear in mind also that this deliverance had taken place, listen, by virtue of the blood of the Lamb. That is to say, the wrath of God was diverted by the sacrifice of the Lamb. Why is that important for us to understand? Because if they were what they were right now at this point, was because God had provided a sacrifice. And so God wants his people to know this. That this was for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to set them apart for his exclusive use. Now we must notice in passing through here that God also wants his people and that means us, too, on this side of the cross. To know him both as a Savior and God. So that their hopes should never depart from this wonderful and awesome reality. Now we must understand that as believers on this side of the cross, that this principle, God setting his people apart, this principle is also presented to us. But listen, not as a condition to be saved, but also as a consequence of our salvation. He has saved us for himself. Just as we observed in the text, God has not given the law as condition to get out of Egypt, but as a consequence of his deliverance from Egypt. Now this must be clear in our minds, because today there is two ditches. First, we see from the one side, antinomianism. Now, what is antinomianism? Antinomianism comes from the Greek, anti, which means against or instead, and the word nomia in the Greek means law. So an antinomian is somebody who is against the law. It is that camp within Christianity that says that the law has no bearing in the life of the believer anymore. Everything goes. We are saved, praise, praise Jesus, now we can live however we want. Now, on the other side, we have the legalistic side. Now, what is legalism? Right, we hear that a lot, too. What is legalism? In essence, is this. Legalism says that you must obey the law in order to remain saved. Therein, the confusion lies. Because why? They say, oh, yes, you're saved by grace. But to remain in that grace, you must obey the law. So we see the two ditches, right? So now this brings us to the first commandment. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I must be honest with you. Time constrains me. Sermons could be preached out of this verse alone. But before I go any further, we must not fail to recognize that, listen, that any system of thought or religion that has not the first commandment as the foundation of learning life and living, it is, the for, it is therefore set in direct opposition to this commandment. Any system of education that contradicts or does not conform to the exclusive worship and adoration of the one true God, any system that does not follow this great and first commandment, it is 
an echo to the hissing of the serpent, saying to the Lord, when being tempted in the desert, bow down before me and worship me, and I will give you the whole world. I will submit to you, brothers, today, that in the light of this, I will rather for my children to sell bananas for a living, but that they would love the true and living God, that they have all the PhDs and doctorates of the world. Let us move on. Our beloved Lord and Master, when asked what is the greatest commandment, he explained it like this. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You find that in Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Now in the light of this fact, the Lord is our God, and that he demands from us absolute devotion and adoration. From the moment we are conceived until the moment we die, then we must conclude that we all have failed to fulfill this commandment. We must understand that this is indeed the holy standard. This is to say, if we hope to be able to make it into heaven, we need to never have failed to love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. But we know that this is impossible. And herein, lies our predicament. This is the indictment. This is what stands against us. This is the record. Therefore, we must conclude that if that is the standard to satisfy God, therefore, we must conclude that we all are utterly damned. There is absolutely nothing, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to satisfy the holy demand of God. Now we begin to understand that the kingdom of God is not about happiness, is not a real problem, our bank accounts, or any other triviality, but the problem here is this, righteousness. We do not have it. So the question then becomes this. What can we do to be saved and how is the believer to live in the light of such an impossible task? Allow me <clears throat> to try to close with a few verses to help us to answer this question. Go with me to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verses 19 through 26. The Apostle Paul gives us the answer to this question. I want to say in passing through here, this is the verse, this is the passage in Scripture, rather this is the epistle that brought Martin Luther, back in the 16th century, to his understanding of salvation by the grace of God alone. 
As many of you know, Luther was a man tormented by the holiness of God, who tried to please God by his monkery, as he said. If anyone could win heaven by doing good deeds and being a monk, that was me, he said. In his memoirs he wrote, he said that he always wondered, am I cold enough? Am I hunger enough? Have I fasted enough? Have, have I prayed enough? Luther was tormented by this God who's holy, implacable. By God, excuse me, but God in his divine providence, many years later when he was studying, after he had become a doctor in theology for the church, he was studying in his tower, preparing his lectures in the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Roman church, and he came to this passage. Listen to what it says, verse 19. Romans 3, verse 19, he says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. In this case, that means us. All that have broken the law. The apostle said, So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may become accountable that is guilty before God. Now, in verse 20, he says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, I want us to understand that. Now, what does the law does? Let me give you just a quick example of what the law does to the believer and what the law does to the unregenerate unbeliever. I'm borrowing this from Calvin's Institutions of the Christian Religion. He said this, the sun rays, S-U-N, and the rays of the sun, that hits the human being who is alive and nourished him. Gives them life, strengthen our bones. But what happened when the sun rays hit a carcass? It does accelerate the process of decaying. Now, is there any fault with the sun rays? Or is it the condition of the subject that makes a difference? Correct. It's the same with the law of God. To those who are dead, the law of God brings death. It condemns us even more. It makes sin even more greater. For to the one who is regenerated, the one who has been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ, the law is life. Someone says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, neither he sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So there is... What is the point here? What is, what is the apostle saying here is this. There's got to be a supernatural act of God in order for us to be able to reap the benefits of the law. Otherwise, the law stands against us. Let us move on. Verse 21. Now, this is the passage that changed Martin Luther. Listen. But now, the righteousness of God. Now, understand. This is the righteousness that is available to the sinner by faith. This is not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous. But this is the righteousness that God makes available to the sinner. So listen to what the apostle said. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now what does that mean? It means this. It cannot be obtained by keeping the law. That's what it means. But it says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what the law does is point us 
to the Savior. He chases us to the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees and scribes, when debating over these things, he told them these words in, five, in John chapter 5, verse 39. He said this, You Pharisees and scribes, he said, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have life. But they are such who give testimony about me. And yet you will not come to me to have life. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For he says, for there is no distinction. Now what does this mean? Why there is no distinction? Why is there a need for righteousness that cannot be obtained by, by the law? Why is there a need for a righteousness that can be only obtained by faith? Now the answer he gives us in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to verse 24, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, Whom God put forward, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember our question. How can... In the light of the law, how can we be justified? How can we be saved? What does the apostle say? By faith in Christ alone. Now, to wrap this up, the apostle Paul also wrote to the Corinthian church, I mean, excuse me, to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. He gives us what is called in theology the order of salutos, that is the order of salvation. Listen to what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So right there immediately we have this. We have the cause, which is the grace of God, and we have the means, which is faith. And immediately it gives us the reason why. Listen to what it says. And this is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen to what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is that means? What that means is this. Not by works or because of works, but unto works. Not by works or because of works. Nevertheless, unto works. That is the purpose of our salvation is Unto works. That must be understood in the light of the Ten Commandments of what, what is happening in the Old Covenant. 
What is said as a condition, do this and live. But they were also told that they were not going to be able to keep the covenant. Why is that important for us? Because this must be apprehended and understood in the light of what Christ has done for us. So, we must understand that as Christians, we must seek to love, listen, we must seek to love our God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength because we have been justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Do we understand that? Now, I don't believe in teaching the abstract without giving you an application. Loving God with all of our minds means that he is king of what we see, is king of our entertainment. We cannot be in pornography and yet claim to keep this commandment. Do we understand that? Same. I want to warn everybody of the dangers of social media. I don't have time to develop that, but I want you to say, I want to say this to you. This social medias are developed as though they were developing drugs. They are addictive. Every time you get a like on Facebook, there is a dosage of dopamine released into your brain which makes it addictive. We are constantly bombarded by imagery that is ungodly. We must be discerning. Loving God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength means that he is king, not only of Sundays here in church, but also of our living rooms. It is said that the true character of a man is revealed not by what he does when everybody's watching him, but by what he does when no one is seeing him. So I got a question to ask. If I was to go through your cell phone and your history of searches and what you have seen, can I come out of that experience saying that you love God with all your mind, soul, and strength? That is a question before you today. Because I will submit to you that we deceive only ourselves. Now to the one who is here today without Christ, in the light of what is said, I want to close, ask you to consider this. Today, the door of salvation is so open before you. You are not only called, but also commanded to repent, to consider your wretched stage. You don't measure up to the commandments to repent and believe and be saved. I want you to consider that if you walk out of here today without repenting and believing in Christ, you may have another chance so long as God keeps you alive. 
You understand that? But here's a, here's the point. All the while, you are bearing the wrath of God upon your shoulders. Today is a day of salvation. So, in the light of that, let us remember, therefore, then, that the first commandment, and as well all the other commandments that followed, are not just suggestions or guidelines, but they are absolute commandments. And the believer must follow them, not trusting in our ability to keep those, but trusting in the ability of Christ to fulfill the law. And put your trust in him alone. And seek for righteousness through repentance and faith. Let us pray.